0: Welcome to the MACEMERGE podcast. My name is Teresa Chen. And with me I have
1: Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter,
0: and Joanna Dida. And we'll be your podcast
1: team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast.
2: Each podcast features one invited guest to
0: speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites.
1: And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about
0: our residents and what they've been up to as well.
1: All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining this month's episode of the podcast. Before we start, the team just wanted to mention the upcoming 10EM conference. Save the date for Friday, October 1st, and check out the website at 10EMconference.org or 10emconference.org. Thanks, and enjoy the show.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Brendan Trotter with Mac & Merge Podcast. We're here with Amna Zaki to speak about some quarter aspects of her career. Hello.
0: How are you, Brendan? How's it going?
2: Good, Amna. Thanks. I'm tired, as you already called us <laughs> a lot earlier today. Um, so why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Probably most of them know you already, but...
0: Yeah, so uh, I'm an emergency physician at uh, Joe's. I actually did medical school in, in Pakistan, moved here, did my residency at McMaster, and then stayed on in Hamilton and now work full-time as an immerge doc at St. Joe's and uh, recently started working as a coroner as well.
2: And we went to class together. We were classmates. We were classmates. <laughs> in yes, we, we
0: wrote the exam together.
2: Yeah, wasn't that great? What made you want to branch out from just emerge? This seems to be a common thing that people talk about in terms of trying to get away from some shift work. Getting some kind of normalcy in other aspects of employment.
0: I wouldn't say that it gets you away from shift work (laughs) and uh, like the hours are not nine to five. Um, But still, it is very different. I mean, unlike Emerge, where it's so fast-paced. It's pretty high stress. I really wanted to try something that was not so stressful. And corner work is really not stressful at all. Also, it's not, you know, like you're running like a crazy person in the department. It's, you know, your own pace. It's quite peaceful. I also wanted to try and learn something new, learn something different. Corner work gives you a different perspective. I mean, we we deal with very sick patients in emerge we deal with dying patients pretty routinely but as a coroner you kind of see the other side you you see things after death and you know the the aspect you know the perspective of the family and kind of what happens afterwards so it is it is very different but no it's not if you're if you're thinking of a (laughs) nine-to-five <laughs> no weekends that's that's not what it is
2: yeah that's a good point because so many other people do things like pain or addictions yeah, or, yeah. or or sexual no. assault and, and so those things are well, no, not No, all of it, you, but.
0: you could get multiple calls between midnight and 7 a.m it's not nine to five but it is it's still very different it's it's quite different from a worse life
2: yeah. And when did you start? With the, it's been the about two series? and a half years. Yep. Okay. We'll talk about kind of what an average shift sounds like a little bit later on. Um, and so, how do you feel if this is going to fit into your long term career type goals? Is this something you think you'll be doing for the for the long haul?
0: I, I think so. I think so. I I really enjoy it. It's nice to have work that is peaceful. I think as I grow older and you know, kind of advance in my career, I think. Perhaps I might cut back on emerge shifts and maybe do more coroner work. And I mean, if if somebody wanted to kind of advance in the world of, you know, forensics and life as a coroner, I mean, there's there's way to advance there, too. You could you could become a regional supervising coroner. So, I mean, that would be more of a nine to five job. Yeah. But I mean, that's certainly always an option if, if if someone wanted to advance and not just do investigative work. So probably a lot of listeners will know Karen Schiff. Karen Schiff, yeah. who was our senior. Yeah, was Karen, our senior residency. She as three, three years? Four years? Or three years? Yeah, she was senior. We were yeah, probably three years. Three years, yeah, yeah. 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 So she's the regional supervising coroner in Hamilton, yeah. um, and she loves it. Did
2: not know that. So is there anything else aside from coroner work that you might think about doing outside of the eMERGE?
0: No, I I I don't know, Brandon. Do you have any ideas? <laughs> is there anything else?
2: Well, we we both talked about kind of pain clinic stuff. Yeah, is this something yeah, that's I, uh, yeah. is a little bit hard potentially for us to to yeah. get into these days. But
0: yeah, I I don't know, I don't know. For now, I think it's just corner work. Yeah. Um, you know, it's I mean, already juggling two schedules can be a bit. <laughs>
2: yes, yeah, it's not looking for a third job. Yeah, I I definitely found that when I was working multiple emerges. Yeah, just juggling. two positions uh, it just adds a whole layer of complexity which makes life more stressful
0: we've got enough stress as is so (laughs)
2: yeah yeah how does the coroner service work in ontario how's the what's the general organization of the system here Uh,
0: i'm an investigating coroner and then sort of above that you've got regional supervising coroners. so ontario is divided into four regions so central west East, north, (laughs) pretty straightforward. (laughs) can remember Uh, that. And then above that, you've got the chief coroner of Ontario. So, I mean, it's just every every region has its kind of setup, which is independent of other
2: regions. Okay. How does your job uh, contrast and compare with forensics, pathologists, and, and all that kind of stuff?
0: So, the coroner is kind of the person who coordinates between the different parties that are involved. I would be the one who would be talking to police, you know, if physician, if it's a case in the hospital, and then the forensic pathologist, if we have to do an autopsy. Every every case is unique, and then there, there are different parties involved, and the investigating coroner is sort of the person who puts everyone together. Like the forensic pathologist does not talk to the family, right? So it's the coroner who <laughs> right. will talk to the family. They yeah. don't They don't talk to the family. That's yeah. not their job at all. You, you need some coordination communication between the police, the pathologist, the family. If there are other physicians involved, you know, or if you need sort of, you know, sometimes you have cases where it's someone may have had some congenital problems, you know, so, so say it's a sudden death case and you need to figure out what their history was. So the person may have died as an adult, but you may need to get records from sick kids. So all that coordinating part is is kind of done by the investigating coroner. And obviously, it's a it's a teamwork, so, and then everybody works together to have an answer to the question. And then, so as
2: an investigation progresses, are you kind of talking to the family, and then talking to the, the pathologist, and then talking to the family again, you're yes. kind of moving back and forth uh, yes, to put together a, pieces is, of the puzzle? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Talking briefly about this before we started recording, so Ontario is somewhat unique in terms of the fact that uh, all coroners are, are medical doctors. Correct. And that is not the case everywhere, as I understand.
0: That is not the case everywhere. In different parts of the world, and, e- and even in different parts of Canada, some places it might be police detective who's who's doing it. Uh, so no, Ontario is one of the unique places where it's actually the, a physician who works at the investigating coroner. Even in Ontario, recently we started involving nurse practitioners. So during the week, during the day, daytime hours, actually they take um, many of the calls that are put up to coroners. And then if it's something pretty straightforward, or if they don't think it needs to be investigated, they would take care of the case as as required. And then if they need to involve the investigating corner, and then we would get called and so on.
2: Do they go through the same training course you guys generally take?
0: I don't think so. So when I did the course, it was only for physicians. Mm-hmm. So I'm not actually sure. I'm sure they do go through some sort of training, but was not with us. I don't know if it's changed since I did the course two and a half years ago. This was something that was introduced kind of after I started working.
2: So we should probably cover coroner case criteria. That's something that people often will be confused about? And so for our listeners, what are the kind of the main reasons why you might have to call a coroner?
0: I mean, the main thing is if you think it's an unnatural death so a coroner should be involved, must be involved, if it's an unnatural death. And then the other big one is, if it's like a sudden death. You know, a sudden is is relative. Right? I mean, it's it can be confusing, right? So an eighty-year-old dies, clutches his chest, and collapses. That's a sudden death, right? I mean, mm-hmm. He didn't expect to die, but that is not a coroner's case, right? Okay, because good. <laughs> I'm still a little bit worried. I might have been doing this all <laughs> around for a while. <laughs> I mean, you can deduce based on his history, his age, that it's probably coronary artery disease related, right? Or natural. It's it's a natural death, right? But say for example, I had a 21-year-old who just collapsed on her doorstep. So that's a sudden death. And you wouldn't expect a healthy 21-year-old to just, you know, suddenly die. So in that scenario, that that was a coroner's case. We investigated it. And it was actually quite sad and very interesting because it turned out after her postmortem that she had a rare genetic disease that led to sudden cardiac death. Okay. This person died as an adult. And when she was a child, we didn't have the technology or, you know, we didn't have the advances that we have now. So probably her genetic Problem would not have been diagnosed when she was a child, even yeah. if she had some issues, right? The technology wasn't there. So it was very fascinating to see how today we were able to do a biopsy and figure out, okay, she had this rare mutation. That kind of also ties into how does this help, right? What's the point of doing all of this, right? Okay, fine. We have a diagnosis. So what? That's relevant because, say, she has siblings, Yep. Right? So now we can figure out if her family members need to be tested and maybe you can prevent another such tragedy, you know, because now we have this information that we yeah. wouldn't have had otherwise.
2: Now what? If the screening is positive, maybe they need an ICD or something. Exactly. Is a good measure exactly. Yeah. Uh, oh, and so for unnatural death, I presume we're talking about accident, suicide, homicide.
0: Is that kind of the yeah, general? Yeah, like uh, all gunshot wounds in Ontario, I mean, this is... As- this is pretty like <laughs> no question, that? but yeah. all gunshot wounds have to be gunshot-related deaths have to be investigated. Obviously, you know any accidental death, you know construction or whatever, any suicide, any homicide, motor vehicle collision, and then sort of the other big ones are any death in in custody, so in police ah, custody yes. yeah. or a correctional facility or yeah. a psychiatric facility. So, yeah. you know, or anywhere where you think excessive use of force. So those all of those must be investigated.
2: Yep. Yeah. So is there sometimes a contentious relationship between coroner and the police on some of these investigations have you found? Or?
0: Uh, no, for the most part, it's, it's actually very interesting. It's a very collegial relationship. You're allowed to disagree, right? Like you may have a scenario where the police officer might think that it's not something that needs to be investigated, or you might think that there's something that doesn't fit. I mean, obviously, they don't have medical expertise, right? To give you an example, and this is not my example, one of my colleagues, she had this very interesting case. So it was an elderly couple and the wife had fallen down the stairs and then had died. And Mm -hmm. so obviously the coroner had been called. The police officer thought that this, and again, this is not my case, this was my colleague's case. And the police officer said to the coroner, you know, it's pretty straightforward. Fine, she fell down the stairs. Probably don't need to do much else here. The coroner noticed that there were petechiae around the woman's face and mouth. And so she asked the husband, you know, what happened here? She fell down the stairs. Why does she have fatigue? And he said, oh, I was doing mouth-to-mouth to, to, you know, revive her. Anyway, it didn't really fit, and it turned out that that husband had actually pushed her down the stairs to... Kill her. Yeah. And he had done the same thing to his previous deceased wife. Sounds like the staircase. Have you seen the staircase on Netflix?
2: (laughs) No. Okay. Very eerily similar.
0: I know, maybe that's (laughs) weird. got the idea from but then they ended up opening that investigation yep. they had to investigate that death yeah. which was ruled an accident but yeah. may have been homicide
2: so you've decided you need to call the coroner for a case so what can you expect when you make the call and what do you have to do with the body with documentation or any tips or tricks that you would suggest
0: it's pretty straightforward i get calls from physicians nurses Police. They go through dispatch, dispatch calls me, I call them back, get the story. If it's not a case, pretty straightforward, you do what you would normally do. If it is a case, uh, almost always it means that I, or whoever the on-call coroner is, will be coming in to review the paperwork and the decedent and talk to family and so on. If you've done a resuscitation or whatever, you know, I would just leave things as it is. Don't, no unnecessary, you know, involvement required once you've decided you need to call the coroner. I would leave things as it is. Don't and, be pulling tubes out of people or... Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I don't think it's a huge deal if that was done, but because I don't know what the scenario is, like I can't give you a blanket statement, right? Like, yeah yeah, it's fine. So sure. most likely it's not a big deal, right? Yeah. But because I don't know what the specific scenario is, safety yeah. is just leave it alone, yeah. close the room. And once the coroner's cleared it, then, you know, things can move on as usual. If the coroner thinks that the person needs a postmortem exam, you don't need to worry about that. Like the coroner can take care of body removal and whatnot. And there are funeral homes and companies that we call to have the body. And they're trained, obviously, in removing the body and transporting it to the forensic unit for further Assessment and a postmortem exam, and so on.
2: You mentioned a an autopsy, or we talked about that a, a couple of times. What what generally will trigger an autopsy, and is that a request that that usually comes from you?
0: That is a request that comes from me. So again, if it's a non natural death, if no. it's a like that twenty one year old who collapsed, you know, we have no idea why she passed away. Obviously, any kind of. Homicide, suicide, you need a postmortem exam. Now, what shape or form that postmortem exam takes can vary. Not everyone will require a full exam. Mm-hmm. For example, if it's a hanging or a strangulation, they might just do an external exam. Okay. They might yeah. just do a whole body CT, right? Yeah. Because that's not someone who needs a cardiac biopsy to yeah. figure out what happened. So it does depend on the situation. Sometimes for religious reasons or cultural reasons, or you know, just personal preference or because it's so traumatic to think about some families might not want to go for an autopsy. But then again, it depends, right? Like if it is, if it is like a criminal case, then it may be necessary because if you don't do it, then not having a pathology report will work against may work against the person, right? If it goes to court of law or or whatnot. So, I mean, that's a discussion to be had depending on the situation. But at the end of the day, I mean, if it's deemed absolutely necessary, like the coroner's office can say, you know, this has to be done. But we can make accommodations, right? Like say they don't want the whole. You know, the whole... I mean, I don't know how, if you've seen an autopsy or on just TV. On I, mean, it's, I mean, it's it's pretty visceral. It's, yeah, it's sure. It's, yeah. it's pretty intense. Yeah. But, you know, again, there's ways to work around it. If a family don't want that done for whatever reason, it can just be an external exam. It can be a whole body CT. It can be just biopsy of certain tissues instead of, you know cutting everything open. There's lots of ways to accommodate families, what a family's requests are, or what what the requirements are, and what's necessary, what's not necessary. Are you able to walk us through a typical shift? Well, why don't I start with one of the coolest shifts (laughs) I had. So I was called later in the evening because this couple who had gone to the Burlington Marina, their thing was that they would go and have ice cream or whatever, or go for a walk or whatever. And then what happened was that the person who was driving, unfortunately, collapsed at the wheel. And then the car just kept going, right? And so he was supposed to park, but somehow his car squeezed between the the roadblocks or the big rocks they put, you know, so you don't go in the water. Mm -hmm. So his car somehow just slipped between between. the two, and then the car went in the water. And, I mean, unfortunately, so his, his partner couldn't get out of the vehicle. There was... Bystanders who jumped in trying, but you know, with the water pressure, you can't open the door. Yeah, yeah, so anyway, the car was completely submerged. When I got there, like just to watch the amount of coordination and you know, like the number of professionals that were involved in trying to get them out was just it was amazing to see. Like we had, I think, the Canadian dive team, Canadian version of the Marines, we had the fire department, and so they had to get a special crane to pull the vehicle out of the water like it was it was really amazing to see and then rather than kind of have to remove them from the vehicle what we did was so in the forensic unit in toronto they have a extraction bay so Mm -hmm. it's this huge hall where you actually tow the vehicle and then they do all of that right in that closed environment instead of you know right in the parking lot Yeah, yeah, yeah i mean even across ontario if there's like a fatal motor vehicle collision, and there's a person inside, you know, instead of removing them on the scene, what they'll do is they'll tow the vehicle to the hall, to the extraction bay, and just do everything there. And it's it's really, really cool, really interesting. And in this case, unfortunately, the, the driver actually had died before the car hit the water, yeah. right? So he had some cardiac event. Yeah. And then he collapsed and then, you know, the partner couldn't stop the car and unfortunately yeah. she, she drowned. But I mean, it was very interesting to see the number of professionals that were involved and coordination that was involved. Like it was was amazing.
2: Is there anything that uh, scares you now, mm-hmm. having
0: seen all these these oh,
2: cases yeah. where it makes you think in ways that other people yeah. may yeah. not? And yeah. how you Drunk prepare. drivers.
1: Drunk drivers. Right. drivers. Yeah. One
0: of my last, the most tragic cases I had was this woman. She was just walking her dog. She was just walking her dog, and this drunk driver hit her and then, you know, dragged her several dozen feet. She died. The dog died. And while we were there, her son came out looking for her because oh, mom hadn't come home yet. Yeah. Yeah you know and yeah so that's that's one that comes to me frequently yeah and like my 12 my year old i tell him look when you're walking home you make sure you keep an eye on whatever car is near you because you never know
2: yeah can't one trust everyone else bird, right? and, yeah uh,
0: yeah so that's i think that's one of the most horrible ones i had
2: yeah for sure how long is an average shift that you do when you're on typically
0: call? we do 24 hour call
2: okay and how many calls do
0: you get on average you may get none and yep. you may get several yeah so, and it also depends on what region you cover so i cover halton yep. um, which is burlington oakville it's not as busy but hamilton is crazy busy <laughs> so, <laughs> that doesn't surprise me i guess i yeah. mean you know if you if you want busy it's it's you know work in hamilton it's, it's not a bad thing <laughs> yeah, fair enough
2: is there any big difference in how coroner's cases are managed from an inpatient standpoint versus uh, an outpatient so
0: not so much so i mean all forensic autopsies are done in toronto or like so for my region it's toronto depending on the region right so not most hospitals don't do forensic autopsies they st- if, if an autopsy is required they have to be transferred like whether it's an MBC or drowning or whatever or something in a house or a hospital it doesn't matter they would have to be transferred one of the i guess advantages of it's if it's a case in the hospital is they may already have done the scans and blood work so they wouldn't have to repeat that at the mm-hmm. forensic unit and so we can we can uh, issue warrants to seize all relevant investigations and use them as part of the, oh, the investigation
2: in terms of covid has there any been any anything- that's that's really changed significantly in your job
0: i mean the, the the regional supervisor and the the office of the corner was incredibly supportive and accommodating and they had made it very clear you know there's a scenario where you're not comfortable you know well we can kind of talk about how to do it safely or whatnot because i mean in the beginning there was a lot more fear and you know it was it was a bit different compared to now right and all of us were mailed like personal PPE supplies. So I had packages with gloves and masks and even some gowns that were sent to me so that I could use it. One of the nice things also that kind of timed well was much of our paperwork is all online so even death certificates and you know warrants whatever we can do them online so that's helpful you know less paper less contact whatnot um but i mean it has i mean yeah it was a bit more scary in the beginning having to go to a decedent's house you know because you have no idea what what happened why they died, did they have covid whatnot you know but uh, i mean we were always well supported and protected and we had ppe and whatnot
2: and you'd still have some sort of index of suspicion in terms of testing out of out of hospital arrests and that kind of thing? Thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, so dying from COVID is not a coroner's case, yeah. right? But if if a death investigation was being done, I mean, my only reminder would be, you know, if you think it's COVID, just for public health purposes, test, as right. a statistic, I mean, just do the swab, yeah, yeah. Um, before we, we transfer the the yep. to the forensic unit. So yep. that would be it but yeah dying from COVID is not a coroner's case yeah (laughs)
2: remember that people for anyone out there that might be interested in becoming a coroner there's actually quite a few merge docs there coroners are involved in coroners in the coroner service Uh, what should uh, someone do?
0: so there's a five day course that's run every year you can email whatever region you fall under or the region you want to work under and uh, they can give you the information for the course it's a five day course and after that you can pick up shifts
2: oh and are they mostly hiring?
0: well the way I did it. Was I did the course, and then I was I informed the region, you know, that I am now a corner who can work in this course, and then they would ask for my availability, and I send them the dates, and then I don't always get the dates that I requested because there's a bunch of us, but, yep. uh, and I'm not working like fifteen. I'm not doing fifteen corner shifts a month, so <laughs> I only do a few. So pretty, usually, I get what I request, which is yeah, two nice. four shifts. But I'm not doing very much. Like yep. Maybe if you wanted to do a lot more, it might be an issue. But if you're just doing a few shouldn't I, I i don't anticipate an issue at this time yeah
2: okay interesting all right well i think that uh, covers most of what we were thinking about talking about today so thanks so much amna for for your insight yeah, no, into thanks, the Brendan. corners world yeah. and uh we'll be touching base with you again i'm sure for some other topic yeah, for, in the future i
0: happy to chat if anybody has you know other questions or just want to ask about how it works i'm, I'm available
2: Yeah. And actually, maybe if you're okay with it, we'll put your email address in the show notes if anyone has questions for you. Perfect. Great. Thanks so much.
1: Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining Residence Corner this month. This month, we'll be talking about personal finance tips for residents. And for this episode, we have one of our very own pgy 3s who has a previous life in finance. So please join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Beatrix Bertzi.
3: Hi, everybody. Spencer, thanks for having me.
1: Can you just give us a brief introduction to yourself and your experience in finance?
3: Sure. Uh, so... I'm Beatrix Bertzi, and uh, prior to medicine, I spent a decade in business and finance, Uh, so the better part of which was spent as a certified financial planner, uh, helping folks identify and reach their financial goals. Uh, So in other words, I helped people with budgeting, saving, tax planning, investments, and insurance and estate planning.
1: Sounds like a lot of things that uh, physicians (laughs) probably need to know about, so you're probably a a big step ahead for the rest of us
3: it
0: is helpful <laughs>
1: yeah so I'm just wondering you know we're all residents and we're just starting to make a little bit of money where, where should residents begin uh, when they decide to start considering personal finance and what would you say the first steps for the residents would be
3: this one's actually a lot easier than most people think uh, save 10% of each pay towards long-term goals like retirement uh, so I'd start by looking at your income, look at how much comes in each pay, and set up an automatic withdrawal for 10% of it uh, to go into your savings for the same day. So if you earn about $2,500 each pay, then set up $250 as an automatic savings plan. This money's for your future. So uh, round up. So if you make $2,484 in a pay, still set aside $250. Now, people will no doubt be wondering where to invest this money or whether to put it into investments under their RSP or their TFSA or if it should go into ETFs or mutual funds or bonds. And the short answer at first is it doesn't matter. Just set it up so that you start the habit and continue to increase how much you automatically set aside as your income increases each year. So stick to the 10%. If you do nothing else, This will already make a huge difference to where you end up in the long run. Ideally, you will do more. So the next step is to budget. Write out all the money that comes in and then write out all the money that comes out. With your expenses, the stuff that comes out of your account each month, you should start with the stuff that is pretty much the same every month. This is called your fixed expenses. It includes your rent or mortgage, your phone bill, your internet bill, your CMPA monthly fee, even though we get most of it back, it still comes out each month, and whatever other fixed expenses you have. Then subtract your fixed expenses from your income. If you get a negative number, you have more expenses than income, you will actually be behind and you're unlikely to do the most important first step that I mentioned earlier, which is setting aside 10% of your pay. So if your number is negative, you either have to cut back on something or make more money. It's that simple. If you had a positive number, you make more than you spend. Then whatever you have left over after you subtract your expenses and your savings is your monthly disposable income. Go nuts.
1: <laughs> I, I hope that I'm in the positive, but sometimes I feel like I'm definitely in the negative. <laughs> Um, I'm just I'm just wondering uh, you mentioned there the 10% for uh, saving what do you what do you think about those who are considering uh, using money to pay off their debt um, would you use some of that 10% to pay off your debt or is that like a different portion of the money that you should be spending
3: uh, so that would be a different portion so um, people are often wondering how they would, balance their debt versus their investing. And the most important thing in order to balance the two is to stop accumulating more debt. So live within your means, which is why that budgeting step is so important. And once you can do that, you will have to start repaying any debt that you've already accumulated. And most people, many people want to pay off their debt first. And they'll say things like, I'll pay off my debt now at double the speed, and then I'll worry about investing. Meanwhile, uh, life will always find more reasons for you to have more debt. So you needed to replace your car, or you decided to buy your first house, or you had kids, uh, you bought a bigger house, etc. And the next thing you know, it's 20 years later, and you're still paying off debt, and you haven't touched your investments. So hopefully that won't happen to any of our listeners here, uh, because they'll have heard the first and only thing worth doing, which is to set aside the 10% of your pay towards long-term savings. Um, but as long as you have debt, the next step after the 10% is for you to devote a percentage of your income towards debt repayment. I usually recommend 20%. I would never spend more than 20% towards paying off your debt. Um, and try not to spend less. And find a way to live within 70% of your means now. If you can do that, you'll live beautifully um, for the rest of your financial lives. And so that 20% is kind of part one. Um, the second part of debt is to consolidate it. Uh, it's just as important as starting to repay it with sort of 20% of your income, uh, consolidating your debt into the lowest possible interest is going to make a big difference. And you have some clout now. So shop around, shop around at your bank, at other banks, And find the lowest interest lines of credit that are available and avoid getting charged those ridiculous fees. Anything more than I'd say prime plus 2% is too much. Uh, Most of us could probably get prime plus 0.5 or less.
1: That's great advice. You're throwing around uh, a lot of numbers and it's like, seems like it might be a lot of math. (laughs) So I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you recommend using any financial services or if you think that residents can do this on their own. Because I know, you know, there's a lot of the services out there that are presented to us from our banks or from like MD Financial Management. Do you think those things are necessary or can we, for the most part, handle it on our own?
3: I would always strongly recommend getting a financial advisor. So, yes, definitely use the services. Uh, feel free to shop around until you find someone that you're really comfortable with. Uh, ideally, someone that starts by going through your budget with you. Uh, someone that encourages you to set up a percent of each pay and then talks to you openly about the difference between putting uh, your investments within an RSP or TFSA or non-registered accounts, RESPs for kids. That stuff can get really complicated uh, and the nitty-gritty of it is not something that you need to really worry about. It's good to have someone in your corner that worries about it for you, the deadlines, etc. Avoid anyone that brings up a whole life insurance policy for squirreling away your money. They're taking advantage of you, and you'll spend more money trying to get out of it um, than you ever would have made. Also, avoid anyone who isn't able to explain everything that they want you to buy in really plain language. If you don't understand it, don't buy it.
1: That's that's really good advice. I've heard I've heard a lot about the whole life insurance policies, and I think <laughs> I've been warned by enough people about that. So hopefully, I don't fall for that. Um, yeah. Now you mentioned RSPs, TFSA's, and RESP's. Do you you have like a recommendation for residents? Should should we be investing in our TFSAs or RSPs or both or any strategies that you recommend for that?
3: Yeah. So the short answer is yes, invest in all of it. Uh, The long answer is kind of long and complicated and best explained in person by your advisor over and over again. Uh, What makes it a long answer? starts in the name. I'd say most people listening to this probably think that a TFSA, so a tax-free savings account, and RRSP, a registered retirement savings plan, are products that you go to the bank and you buy. Uh, But they're not products. They're vehicles where you carry your investments. So one analogy is to think of investments uh, as patients. And TFSAs, RSPs as air and land ambulances, uh, so both the air and land ambulance get the same patients to the hospital. They just take different routes. Same with TFSAs and RSPs. Both will get you to your destination of retirement and what you invest in can be exactly the same. So, for example, you can buy Scotiabank stock and hold it in your TFSA or your RRSP or both and How they get you there is a little bit different. So the main difference between the two is how you get taxed. With the TFSA, you get taxed on the way in. With the RSP, you get taxed on the way out. Both let your money grow tax-free, which means you don't pay tax on growth each year. And if you do it right, there actually shouldn't be really much difference between the two. Uh, But this is where an advisor can come in handy. So as a resident, I don't pay tax, not yet anyway, because of my exorbitant tuition credits. Uh, So I don't worry about getting taxed on the way in, which means that all of my investments are currently traveling via the TFSA for now. Uh, When I'm staff, I will welcome a tax break on the way in. And so I'll be leaning more towards my RRSPs. But realistically, I'll probably try to maximize both annually whenever I'm able And because I know that I will get taxed on the way out in the RRSP, I'll look at my portfolio as a whole and I'll treat all of my investments as if it's one large investment. And I'll put the slower growing things in the RRSP and the faster growing things in the TFSA. And what I mean by that is based on how tolerant we are to risk, we will want stuff in stocks versus stuff in bonds. So stuff that has lots of risk versus stuff that has very little risk. And the th- stuff with little risk has very slow, predictable growth. And the stuff with lots of risk has potential for higher, more unpredictable growth. And what I would do is I would have the stuff that has the potential to grow more sit in my TFSA. And the stuff that has potential to grow maybe a little bit less sit in my RSP. And overall, my portfolio will be balanced for my risk tolerance. Now, if that sounded really complicated, <laughs> that's because it can be, which is why I find it really helpful if this isn't second nature to you because you didn't spend a decade in finance like I did, that you have an advisor that you trust, that you can check in with every three to six months and just sort of look at your investments together and talk about um, sort of an overall plan as opposed to just I'm gonna set this money in here
1: yeah just throwing money in something without understanding it I guess it is the the main premise from my understanding the RSP that you'll be taking your money out at a later time when when we're, our incomes will be lower and our tax brackets will be lower is that kind of the purpose of that
3: that is the main premise. In my experience, most people, once they're retired, don't like to live a worse lifestyle than while they were working. If anything, they're bigger spenders. And so their income is usually needed to be about the same, if not higher. So often people that were making three, four hundred thousand a year in their working lives are still requiring one to two hundred thousand a year to pull out. To now pay for their retirement. They're not in a lower tax bracket. Hmm.
1: Interesting. I never thought of it like that. <laughs> Slightly concerning. For- <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's, that's really good advice. Um, I'm just wondering um, you've, you've said a lot of things that I think are very helpful in understanding some of the common questions. Do you have any suggestions on what residents should do to prepare for the rest of their lives? Like on top of what we've talked about already.
3: Um, I'd say sort of going back to the financial advisor, I'd say uh, concept preparing for the rest of your financial lives is all about teamwork. Uh, you'll need the financial version of a multidisciplinary team working for you. So a good tax advisor will be your most valuable asset. That's where most of your money will go. So ideally an accountant who works with your financial investment advisor uh, to making decisions that make sense for you. If you have children, you'll want a good estate plan, uh, which will include a comprehensive insurance portfolio and a will and power of attorney documents for both property and health. And you'll want to get all these people in the same meeting at least once uh, so that everybody's on the same page with you. As residents, you can already get some of the ball rolling on this. So you can meet with a financial advisor or five, depending on how comfortable you were with the first one, and start to discuss where that 10% of each pay should go. You can also already start to put together a strategy for your taxes come staff life If you do nothing else, go into your account and set up the 10% of each pay to be pulled on the same date as your pay comes in. Even if you simply send it into like a savings plan, it really doesn't matter. Just start the habit now as a resident, and you can figure out the rest later.
1: Yeah, I think I uh, came into this feeling like I had some idea of what I was doing. But now I'm wondering if I should be uh, getting a financial (laughs) advisor as well. So... I mean, just to summarize everything, it seems like the main messages are getting a financial advisor can actually be very helpful, um, even though you may think you know what you're doing, Um, and then saving that 10% and trying to put 20% of your paycheck into your debt as well, but also saving at the same time. And then when choosing between a TFSA and RRSP, it might be a discussion for your financial advisor, but... At the baseline, the answer was yes to investing in them. So <laughs> hopefully it works out regardless of what you choose to invest in. Does that seem like a reasonable summary of everything that you mentioned?
3: Absolutely. You got it. If everybody gets it this way, then you guys are set.
1: Yeah. You make it sound simple, but complicated at the same time. So,
3: <laughs> Hopefully more simple than complicated. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I anyway, know it's nice. We've had a couple of talks from from you about this kind of thing. So it's nice for the resident group to have have you as a resource for us. So I really appreciate you uh, joining the podcast today. So thanks for your time and your advice.
3: It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge Podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region.
1: Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested,
2: please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well.
1: Again, thanks
3: for listening. Let's all stay connected.
0: Macemerge out!